Memorial Day is one of those days that um, I always like a lot. For a lot of people, we think of it as a kickoff to the summer season, barbecue season, white shoe season. Uh, but it's <laughs> when we remember of what it was that others have done for us, that the life that we have, the freedoms that we have, were bought for a great price. And it says that no greater love has anyone than this, and he who lay down his life for his friend. And there are a lot of people who have laid down their lives for us, and we never even met them, we never knew them. So to everybody who served, uh, every family that's had someone that's served and that's lost someone, uh, we thank you so much, and we're so grateful for the sacrifices that you all have made, and for the way that you've even demonstrated the love of Jesus to us through your willingness to lay down your life for us. So uh, thank you for all of you who are serving and have served, families, everybody connected to that. And speaking of hardships, we're starting a new uh, series on marriage. Isn't that a great segue? <laughs> it worked out a lot better in my head than it actually happened in real life. Like so many things in life, it was way better in my head. But uh, I was getting ready for this series, and I was talking to my wife. We were sitting out on the, our little like, uh, patio on our porch swing watching the kids play. Like, that's the ultimate thing of marriage. We've seen the fruit of marriage in our children, and they're not crying at this moment. So it's like, this is awesome. And I asked her, I said, hey, when we got married and leading up to marriage, or even as a kid, what was it that you dreamed about? What did you think marriage was going to be like? And she's like, well... I thought, you know, I was thinking about the wedding day and I'd have this really pretty dress and you know, you'd carry me across the threshold into the house and I imagined it would be like, it'd feel like there's sunshine every day and like the birds are always singing. I'd have you with me forever and ever and we'd never be apart and we'd have candlelight dinners every night. I'm like, really? <laughs> that was what you were hoping for, dreaming about in marriage and she's like, yeah. She's like, what do you dream about? And I'm like, no, it's a silly, I don't really want to share. She's like, I told you, come on, tell me what your hope was for marriage or what you dreamed about. And I was like, well, I kind of thought maybe we'd have sex twice a day, every day, three times on Sunday. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I'm being honest and real. You shared what was on your heart. I'm just letting you know how I felt about it. Amen. And here's the thing. We're both still dreaming. <laughs> we'll probably be dreaming for a long time. <laughs> Our expectations for what marriage was going to be like has not exactly become the reality of our life. But we're all dreaming, aren't we? Yeah. We all had expectations for what marriage was going to be like. Or maybe if you're single here today, uh, you have an idea of what marriage will be like for you someday. And, and even for us, yeah, and even for us who... Um, have gone through marriage. Those of you that are married, you obviously, if you are married, you have encountered hurt inside of marriage uh, to some level. Some of you, you might be here today and there's regret that's involved in your marriage. Uh, you think it's broken. Maybe your marriage is absolutely in shambles and it's become something that's very destructive inside of your life. It's a source of pain and hurt for you. And that's something that's not uncommon. And I want you to know that's okay. If that's the place you're at in your marriage today, that's okay. And the whole idea behind this series, uh, which is called From This Day Forward, goes back to a verse in Lamentations, which is, it's so funny, we're doing a marriage series and we're basing it off a verse in Lamentations. Uh, but this is what it is. Israel has found themselves, they had all these hopes and all of these expectations for what was going to happen to them as a nation, and they have all been completely obliterated and destroyed. They don't see how there's any way back to what it was that they had hoped for, what they felt like God had promised them. And so uh, this is what's written in there. It says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. 
Uh, maybe say that's, you find yourself in that place related to your marriage. Uh, there's bitterness inside of it. There's affliction inside of your marriage. When it talks about gall, that means the contents of your gallbladder, which is nothing good, it turns out. It means that there's venom, there's a vitriol, there's spite, anger. It talks about this is the way that he's feeling in his spirit, in his soul. It's downcast. It's filled with bitterness because of the, the failed expectations that he had because of all the hurt that's come through what it is that they've gone through as a nation and for him personally. But this is what he says. He says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And some verses translate that as your mercies are new every morning. And what it means is that every single day that we wake up, there is a possibility, there is the hope that God is going to do something miraculous inside of our lives, something miraculous inside of our marriages. Because the heart of God is that every day, his mercies, his goodness, his compassion, it says it's new for us. It doesn't matter what it is that happened yesterday, last week. It doesn't matter what's been happening for the last 20 years inside of our lives or inside of our marriage. We can make this decision and we can have a hope that there is going to be life, that there's going to be freedom, that we're even going to find joy. And the resentment, the gall, the bitterness, the downcastness of our soul can all be uplifted because our hope is in God. And there is no shortage of power in God. And so if you've made mistakes in your marriage, Maybe today you're in a place, if you know that, where you have done some really stupid things that have been hurtful to your spouse, today you can make this decision, or maybe there's been a lot of hurt and unforgiveness inside of your heart towards your spouse. What we can do is we can say, today's a new day. God has new mercy for us today. And because of that, we have hope. Because of that, we are not consumed. And I can't control anything that's happened in the past, but from this day forward, from this day forward, things are going to be different. Yeah. From this day forward, there's going to be change. Yeah. And the big question that we're trying to answer in this series is can you have a great marriage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, honestly, can you have a great marriage? Does that seem like something that's unattainable, something that you can't even hope for? Because there aren't a lot of them that you see out there. The answer to that question is, yes, you can have a great marriage, but it's not probable. It's not likely that you will have a great marriage. In fact, the odds are, the stats say that 50% of all marriages will end in divorce. And that's not accounting for the people that stay together because they're committed to each other or because of the children, work, things, whatever it might be, but they live in a very unhappy marriage even when they are married. Statistically, odds are that you will not have a great marriage. And the reason for that is because we as Christians, even though we say that we have a hope that's in Jesus, we continue to live the same way that the world around us lives in the place of marriage. Here's the thing. If I told you that this car that you're about to, to drive somewhere, there's a 50% chance that it's going to blow up while you're driving it, would you get in that car? No. If I told you, I love how pilots, every time you take a flight, I love how they all pretend they're weathermen. Like, hey, uh, thank you for flying Delta. We're going to be in Atlanta at about 315. It looks like about six miles visibility, high of 83 degrees. And about a 50% chance of crashing today on the way. (laughs) I would get off that flight so far. I'd be pulling the door, the emergency (laughs) door, and getting out. If I know there's a 50% chance that I'm going to crash, I'm off of that plane. 
but we approach marriage the same way as everybody else. You know what's funny? Is to get your driver's license, you had to, to study, you had to take a test, you had to pay money, all that kind of stuff. What do you have to do to get married? Nothing. It's like $15 fee, sign on the line, and you can get married, and 50% chance you're going to crash and die. <laughs> Why is it that we treat something like marriage, which is so important to us, that affects our life more than anything other than our decision to follow Jesus, and we go about it with a 50% chance that it's going to fall apart and an even greater chance that we're going to live unhappy inside of our marriage. We should do something different, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we do something to increase those odds that we're going to stay together? Shouldn't we do something to increase the odds that we're going to find joy and happiness, strength, and even holiness inside of our marriages? But if we do the same things that everybody else does, we're going to get the same results everybody else gets. If we live in marriages like the world around us, and it doesn't matter that you're a Christian, if you're doing the same things that the people who aren't Christians are doing, you're going to get the same results that they're going to get. For us to get the results that nobody else gets, we have to do the things that nobody else does. And there are five commitments that I think that we can make in our marriages that will fail-proof our marriages. And if we will really dig into these things and apply them to our hearts, uh, if you're single, if you will be mindful of this as you're moving into your marriage, or if you're married right now, if you'll say, I don't know, you know what's been happening, maybe your spouse isn't a believer and that makes this whole other level of messiness, but we can say from this day forward, I'm going to make these commitments so that what I see happen in my marriage isn't what we see happening in the marriages of everybody else that's around us. And the first commitment that we have to make is to seek God. The foundational principle of our lives of Christians, the thing that affects everything else that we do, is that we first and foremost seek the king and his kingdom. We seek Jesus. And Jesus even says this in the Sermon on the Mount. I love it. He's teaching. He's doing all of these really practical things for our lives as believers. And he's teaching, and he says, hey guys, you don't need to worry about what it is that you're going to eat. You don't need to worry about what it is that you're going to wear. Now, that might seem odd because last I knew you needed food to live and you needed clothes to stay out of jail. But Jesus is saying that even these most basic of human needs aren't the things that our hearts are supposed to be going after. He says that's what the world around us chases after. But he says, but we as believers, as those who are seeking after Jesus, he says this is what we're supposed to do. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. See, the key to allowing God to provide you with all of the things that you need in your life, and he knows that you need food, he knows that you need clothes, he knows that you need a house to live in and all of these other things, God knows that. But what he's saying is that if you exclude him from the equation, then it's going to be dependent on you to provide yourself with all of these things. And there's going to be times where you won't be able to do that. But he says, but if you seek me first, then what you do is you allow me to be the one who becomes your provider. When you seek after me first and foremost in your life above everything else, then I'm going to give you everything that you need. We as Christians, we should be defined as those who seek after Jesus above everything else in this world. But even though we recognize that as a principle to live by, we don't apply that to relationships a lot of times. How many times uh, do people come up and they're like, you know what, I just need you to pray for, for me that God would bring me the one so I can be complete. I'm like, oh man, you'll, if you're not complete now, you're going to be an incomplete person who's married. 
And that makes it even harder. What we do, though, is you find a, you know, Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, and you just think, oh, everything about them is so great. I love it. The guy's like, I, I met this girl, and she's so pretty, and she just, oh, she smells good. I'm like, that's perfume. That's not actually her. <laughs> you can go buy a bottle of perfume and smell, and if that'll make you complete, then it's a lot cheaper anyways. <laughs> or the same with the girls, and they're like, oh, this guy, he's just so cute. And what, I don't know what girls like about guys. I, I don't know, but there's something, and they think, oh, I just need them, and they complete me. But you know what happens is when you say that someone's going to make you complete, you're idolizing them. Yeah. Only God can make you complete. Yeah. No person can complete you. I'm a married man. I figured that out. My wife does not complete me. I love her to death. We compliment each other beautifully. But you take Jesus out of our equation, and I'm still longing and I'm still searching. I don't have what it is that I need. So we have to get to this point where we stop idolizing. Because when you idolize someone, when you put them into the place of being your completion, to being the one who brings you joy and all of these other things, then what happens is you put them up on a pedestal that no one can ever measure up to. They will always fail you. You're setting, themsel- you're setting them up to fail you. It's not fair for you to idolize them. Because what happens is when they do fail you, then you go from idolizing them to demonizing them. Come on. Come and you on, think, man. they're the problem with my life. If I was just a single man or a single woman again, I'd be so much better. I married the wrong person. I need to find the right person. I love this. Um, I'll, okay, so all the, the girls, all my female friends and sisters have been married and stuff, this is what they say, like, oh, I just love, he's so perfect, he's so laid back, he's just so chill about everything, I just love that. They idolize that in their man, and then, 10 years down the road, like, he's a bump on the log, never does anything, just plays video games all day. What they idolized and loved about the person became what they despised about them. And some of my guy friends, I have one friend, he, mar- he was like the most disorganized guy in the entire world. And so he's like, oh my gosh, she's so perfect, she's so organized, she's scheduled, she's just got everything together, it's so incredible. And now 10 years later, he's like, she's a control freak. <laughs> he despises that about her now. Because every time you idolize someone, you're setting them up to fail you. And then you will hate them for that. And that's not fair to them. They were never supposed to be idolized in your life in the first place. But you know why we do that? You know why we put people into that position? It's because we haven't come to the place where we found our completeness in God. Because we've been seeking after someone else. We haven't first and foremost been seeking after God. We haven't been seeking the king. We haven't been seeking the kingdom. And so before we can move into anything else in our marriages to have a healthy, strong marriage, you have to come to the point of where you take someone off of the pedestal and you put Jesus onto it. Yeah. And you say, no matter what, from this day forward, first and foremost, I'm going to seek after God for my completion. I'm going to seek after God for my provision. I'm going to seek after God for his mercies, his compassion, for his grace to empower me. Because here's the reality, is that God needs to be your one, and your spouse needs to be your two. God always has to be one, and your spouse needs to be two. Don't ever make someone else your one. You set them up for failure. You put a pressure on them that they can't handle, they were never supposed to have. And when they fail you, instead of having mercy and compassion for them to strengthen them in their weakness, you despise them for it. So seek Jesus first. 
And here's the thing, um, for those of you who aren't married, but you're hoping to be married someday, this is the commitment that you need to make, is that I will seek the one while preparing for my two. Don't be going out seeking after your spouse. Seek Jesus. Because when you seek after Jesus, he brings you the things that you need. But first, you've got to seek him. That's why I see so many people, uh, you know, young men and women who, are, who love Jesus, but they end up because they're just trying to find someone so bad, they compromise and they start uh, dating someone who isn't a believer. They go against God's command to us because they're just looking for someone. They're trying to make it happen on their own. And that always leads to compromise inside of their own life. And it always leads them to the place where they're drawn away from God. And then if they get married, it's, it's just an incredible heartache that exists inside of the marriage because you think you can change them. You know, I'm missionary dating them. They're going to come make a decision to follow Jesus. You are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals God to them. If you try to do that, you're, you're short-circuiting what it is that God's trying to do, and you put yourself in that position. And even if you're willing to tough it out and the hardships that come along with it, then when it enters the children into it, and you're going to teach them to love and to follow Jesus, or you're going to teach them some other way, it just creates all kinds of headaches. So people, if you're single here, uh, and you're dating someone who isn't a believer, get out. I know that sounds hard, I know it sounds painful, and it will be painful, but not nearly as painful as marriage is going to be for you. As disobedience to what God has called you to is going to be inside of your life. And make sure, if you're single right now, that you only ever date someone who already is a believer. And here's what we need to do. Uh, just a l- this is, I'm trying to, let me go back to this. The way Ann and I met, it was really a moment of where I had, okay, I did like the typical guy thing like everybody does. I'm like, oh, I just need my spouse to make me complete. You know, I need my Ruth or, you know, whatever it is, and then I'll be able to do the ministry that God's called me to. And like, I've been pursuing this for years and trying to make it work with all of these different girls, and it just wasn't happening. And so finally at the point where like, God, I apparently have really bad judgment and really bad taste, so I'm just going to let you take care of this. I'm just going to seek after you. I'm going to become as godly as I possibly can be. I'm putting my attention and my focus solely on you and in following you, and then I, I'm done. If you bring me someone at some point, that's completely up to you, but I'm done trying to make it happen myself. A few months later, I'd moved back from Tennessee to Michigan, quit the band and everything, wanted to get involved in the local church, and I went to an engagement party for a friend, and I met Anna there, and there were no sparks whatsoever. (laughs) It was not a magical moment. Like, we both remember meeting each other and thinking, like, they're a dork. (laughs) That was our initial impression of each other. And then about three months later, I started uh, getting involved in serving at the church that she was going to, and I began to notice her heart. And I saw how much she loved these people, and she was pouring into them. And she was already pretty. Like, I always thought she was pretty, but when I got to see her heart, my heart was like, ah, and I got Twitter-pated, or whatever you call it. (laughs) And God brought us together. We weren't seeking each other. God just arranged it so that we came together. And you know what? If I hadn't been following Jesus with everything inside of me and doing everything I can to be a man of God, I never would have caught her eye. So here's the thing. Like attracts like. Yeah. Come on, 
This was my experience. Grew up with a lot of friends in high school, and, you know, middle school, and we were all following Jesus in youth group together, and we wanted to make an impact for the kingdom, and we went to college. And what happened was we kind of decided, all right, let's take a little bit of a break from that, and, you know, let's have some fun, and there's peer pressure, and there's other temptations, and so I remember I went on from, like, he started, you know, drinking, and uh, started experimenting with drugs and stuff, but he's like, but, you know, this is just like my wild years, and I'll get back to following Jesus someday and make a big difference in my life. And, you know, he started sleeping around with some girls and stuff. And then what happened was he met this incredibly just wonderful Christian woman. And he's like, oh, Jeremy, she's, she's so smart and she's pretty and she's godly and she's serving in the church and she's uh, mentoring, you know, women in the high school and all that stuff. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to ask her out. And you know what he found out was that a girl like him, her wanted nothing to do with a guy like him. And he was heartbroken by that. If you want to marry someone that isn't taking following Jesus seriously and is just partying and sleeping around and doing everything else not following God, then by all means, do that. But if you want a godly spouse who follows after Jesus with their whole heart and is investing themselves in people and in the church, then that's the kind of person that you better become. Because like attracts like. And so if you are married today, that's with you. If you're single today, you just focus on becoming that person who's following after Jesus. And if you are married here today, this is a commitment you need to make, is that I will seek the one with my two. Uh, if you're a Christian and you aren't actively seeking God together, then you guys have a 50% chance of your marriage ending in divorce and a high chance that you're going to live a very tough, unhappy marriage. There's no difference statistically between people that say they're Christians and those who say that they aren't, statistically when it comes to whether their marriage is going to succeed or not. The difference comes from if you're willing to seek God first and foremost in your life with your spouse. If you're going to say, Jesus is my number one in my life. And if you're willing to make your spouse your number two. What happens so many times is we start making our careers our number two. We think that we're going to climb this ladder. We're going to achieve these things. Uh, we think that money has to be our two. We think that our kids have to be our number two. How many people do you see that their kids are their number two? This is what's so funny about American culture is we treat our pets like our kids. We treat our kids like our spouse. And we treat our spouse like our animals. <laughs> it's like we've got this messed up circle going on. Your spouse has to be your number two. You can't just follow Jesus and then, you know, neglect your spouse. Your spouse has to be the number two in your life. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, my kids are the most important thing. No, they're not. Your kids are incredible. They're a gift that God has given you, and you have a responsibility to steward this gift that God has given you and to teach them to love and to fear Jesus. But before your kids were, your spouse was. And after your kids move out, your spouse still is. Amen. So if you spend the entirety of the child-rearing years making your kids number two, then when those kids leave, you find out you don't have a marriage. Your kids have to be your number two. I like this. This is one of the things I, like when my kids are being crazy or whatever, or they don't want to do something, like, hey, they're just along for the ride. Like, they're lucky that they get to hang out and to tag along with us in life. <laughs> they didn't bring me into the world. They don't pay the bills. They don't want to go see grandma? Too bad. We're getting in the car and we're going to see grandma. Because my kids... They're number three in my life. But my spouse, my wife, yeah. she is always going to be number two. Yeah. 
and you need to make sure that your spouse is number two because if your spouse isn't number two, even if Jesus is number one in your life, first of all, you're not being obedient to the number one. And then secondly, you'll never be able to model and demonstrate to the world around us the commitment and the sacrificial love that we have for each other, which is a picture of the love that Jesus has for us. You have to make sure that you're seeking God together with your spouse in the number two position inside of your life. So how is it then that from this day forward, we can seek God together? And number one is pray together. In our culture, faith is a private thing. And you know where that idea came from was from someone who was running for president who wasn't following Jesus, but didn't want to make it sound like they weren't following Jesus. So to hide what they were doing, they said, you know, my faith is a private matter. But that's not the way that God called us to live. It says this in James chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Other people involved in this, not privately. This is a public thing that we have going on. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. A private faith doesn't lead to healing. A public faith does. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that word sin, it doesn't just mean sin, it also means the problems that you have. So this is what it should look like inside of your marriage. You guys need to be praying for each other. For the sin issues that you have in your heart, and you guys are well aware of them, you might know the sin issues in your spouse better than they know them in their own life. That's the beauty of marriage. But you also need to be praying for the problems, the struggles, the difficulties that they're coming against. If we just do it privately on our own, it says that the healing won't come. But when we're doing this together with each other, it says those prayers are powerful and they're effective. Here's the sad thing. They did a study and they found that only 8% of all Christian couples pray together. 8%. That is insanely low. But they also found that of those people who do pray together, it was a fraction of 1% that ever divorced. You want to go from 50% odds to a fraction of 1%, there's one thing you can do that'll make that difference, and it's pray together with your spouse. Now, th- it can be different. I mean, it's awkward. I'll tell you what, when Anna and I started deciding we're going to pray together, it was, it was weird. Because I've been doing it privately all my life, or in groups of people. But when it's just two people, it's like, are we supposed to hold hands? Or like, do we tap? Do we squeeze the hand when it's their turn to pray? <laughs> uh, just like little things like that. It's just so weird. And so it started out being kind of generic prayers and really short, but we started somewhere. Yeah. In fact, when we decided we were going to date each other, I professed my love for her uh, when I was dropping her off from a group date. And I was like, I had this whole speech, ended up coming out like, I have a big crush on you. And she's like, oh, I have a crush on you too. And she's like, so what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, let's pray. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we held hands and prayed, and that was how we started our relationship. Amen. Amen. But that's been incredible in our relationship. Amen. And for you, that's why I encourage you, just make that commitment. <clears throat> Grab your spouse's hand, whether it's at the dinner table, <clears throat> at night before you go to bed, Whatever it is, even if it's just for a couple minutes, even if you're just like now laying me down to sleep and pray to Lord my soul to keep, like just start somewhere <laughs> and allow it to grow. And now when Anna and I pray together, and it's not even every day that we're praying together, sometimes we're super busy and don't see each other, and she works second shift and I'm working during the day, but it's like texting each other, like, hey, I'm praying for you. Yeah. Just being aware of what's going on and continually praying for each other throughout the day. 
Because you make that one commitment, you do that one thing, and it just drastically changes the odds. Why? Because it's really hard to cheat on someone that you're praying for every day. It's really hard to plan to divorce someone that you're praying with every single day. When you pray, you ask God to come into the equation. You ask him to come and to move on each other's heart. Instead of trying to change each other now, you're allowing God to come in and to change you. So pray for each other. If you're single, pray with whoever it is you're dating, but don't ever like do it on the sofa. Pray standing up, because prayer is bonding and powerful. If you're praying sitting down on a couch somewhere, you end up speaking in tongues and not the holy kind. So <laughs> be careful how you're praying with each other. I'm serious. Like, it's funny, yeah. but it's serious. You need to have some safeguards in there. Be, if you're married, pray on the couch, pray in the bed, like do whatever you got to do. But if you're single, you need to make that a foundational part of your yeah. relationship, but yeah. be careful because yeah. it draws your hearts close. Have safeguards involved in that. Number two, you need to discuss the Bible together. As, uh, my, my wife and I have tried things like, uh, like uh, she likes it when I just read the Bible to her. So we'll be laying in bed before like, I'm going to sleep and I'll be reading the Bible. And if I'm behind on my reading plan, I'm like, oh shoot, I gotta hurry up and read these two chapters real quick before bed. She's like, can you read out loud to me? And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so I'll read it, but I hate it. Like, I absolutely hate reading out loud. Or if she's trying to read, I'm following along, I'm getting way ahead of her. And I'm like, I just don't like that. Um, so what we do is we follow the little soap journaling things, like that 24-week New Testament plan that we have that you can grab at the information table. We make it so we're reading the same scripture every day, and then we just talk about, hey, what really stuck out to you? Or if you have a question, hey, what did this verse mean? Or what did you take away from that? And it makes it so that we're just talking about it. And this is the way that it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be an organic part of our life. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what God says. He says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. God isn't saying you have to have these formal Bible studies with your spouse and with your children every day. That might work for you, probably won't work for you. But be reading and be talking about these things that you're reading, sharing with each other, impressing them upon each other. And it's so simple. So that if you're not doing anything right now, go out there, information table, grab that 24-week New Testament plan that we have, and just commit, say, you know, for these 24 weeks, we're, uh, even just start with a week, just go for a week, and say every day we're both going to read this chapter to two chapters, and at night we're just going to talk about what we read, what we thought it meant, what stuck out to you, and you will see how it begins to, first of all, make Scripture come more alive to you, but also gives you the opportunity to process through things with someone else. I love growing in Jesus, but what I don't want to do is grow independently of my wife's growth with Jesus. I don't want us to grow like this. Yeah. By praying together, by discussing the Bible together, and what God's doing in our lives, it causes us to grow together and towards God. And then uh, number three, attend church together. Now clearly, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are at church on Memorial Day weekend. You are the committed, you are the few, the proud, the brave. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you aren't committed to being a part of a church, if you aren't just committed to, to being a part of what's going on here and even serving in the church and supporting it, making this a part of your routine, then it's going to allow you to continue to drift apart as well. And this is what happens in your kids' lives. Stay-at-home parents don't raise go-to-church kids. 
Average church attender in the United States of America goes once a month. That's 12 times a year that you come in with your brothers and sisters and you're encouraged together, that you're uplifted, that you're worshiping together, that you're serving together. For me, growing up, it was this. You're going to church. If you're sick, take a bag with you. <laughs> it was like, but we are going to church. When we were on vacation, we were going to church wherever we were at. And whatever town, we'd, you know, it was like back then we didn't have the internet. And so it was like drive down the road. Hey, here's a Methodist church. So we just like go there. But what happened was as much as a as times difficulty that was for us, and as a kid, I was like, oh gosh, I don't want to go to church today. I'm just so sick of going to church. But what it did was it was like that for my wife's family and for my family. All of us kids that were raised like that, we are all passionate about Jesus. Yeah. We are all serving, I mean, we're all serving in leadership roles in the churches that we're a part of. And we're all raising children that love Jesus. We all have strong marriages. We all have strong relationships with our spouses. We've been bonded together. And that wouldn't have happened, I don't believe, if my parents hadn't made the decision that we were going to wake up early and kick us out of bed and tell us that we couldn't do different things on Sundays because Sunday morning we were in church. And that's a hard thing. But if you want to have a marriage that's not a 50% chance of failing, that isn't even a higher rate of being miserable. If you want to have a fraction of a percentage of a chance of your marriage ending in divorce, then you're going to have to do the things that nobody else is doing. You guys pray with me this morning. Now what would happen in our lives if we committed to seeking God first and foremost? What would happen in our marriages if, if we decided that we were going to come together as a couple to seek Jesus. And maybe you're not married to a believer, but even if you just decided, God, I'm going to come to you and seek you first and foremost and allow you to work on my spouse's heart, I believe there could be great opportunities for kingdom change inside of them. And this is what it says in Psalm 127, is that unless the Lord builds a house, it's builders labor in vain. We can do everything in this world to try to have a great life, have a great marriage. But if we aren't seeking God, if we aren't seeking God together, then it says that everything that we're doing, it's all for nothing. Because we need Jesus to be the foundation. We need to be Jesus to be the cornerstone and the one that we're pursuing and seeking after. And this is what I want us to make the commitment to today, is that we are going to have a God-first life. That we're going to have a God-first marriage. And this is what I'm, I'm going to challenge you guys to today. Just take this week and commit to praying together every day, sharing what it is that you're struggling with, how you need your spouse to pray for you and then praying for them, to reading the Bible together and talking about it, and to make that commitment to say, we're going to be people who go to church. We're going to raise our kids to love the church and to be a part of it. And we're going to receive the strength and the support and the encouragement that comes from being a part of a church family. And Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to us this morning? This morning, if you know that you need to seek Jesus, that he honestly hasn't been the pursuit of your life, whether it's that you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, 
or maybe there's been other things that have come, other distractions in life, and, and he's just kind of got pushed to the side. And this morning, God's calling you to make a decision to seek him first and foremost. If you've never made that decision, then ask him to forgive you of your sins, to give you new life, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Make that decision that from this day forward, I'm following you, Jesus. If you already are a follower of Jesus, just that recommitment to say, God, forgive me that I've put other things in the top spot in my life. I'm removing those idols, even if it's another person. And I'm going to follow after you from this day forward. And in your marriage, maybe you haven't been seeking God together, but you're deciding from this day forward, together with your spouse, you're going to seek after God and allow him to change you and to transform you and to give you a marriage that is a reflection of the marriage between Jesus and the church. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. God, thank you for your great power. You said that nothing is impossible for you. And so, God, we take you at your word this morning for the impossible situations inside of our own heart and sin issues and areas we've closed off inside of us. God, would you come and bring holy conviction, not condemnation or shame, but conviction calling us to that life, God, that we would be repentant, we would turn away, and we would seek you and you alone. God, give us soft hearts towards our spouses. Jesus, give us strength in our dating relationships to be pure and to be holy and to seek after the people that you've called us to be with God and not the others. Jesus, help us to be content and to find completion in you and you alone. Jesus, we pray that in Radiant Church, we would be filled with strong marriages, God, that we would be those who are able to minister to those who are around us who are hurting and broken inside of their marriage and be able to speak hope and life to them. Jesus, let our marriages be filled with life and love and passion and mercy for each other. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to... Um